EXO number 10, Craftsmanship. Making EXO is a lot of work, and normally that's not something I've got a lot of patience for. I'd much rather do something quickly and move on to the next project. Historically, when I've really buckled down and worked hard on something, the results have almost never been worth the effort. But EXO is bucking that trend. I've been working on this particular episode for a week, and I've torn it down and restructured it three separate times, and that's not unusual. That seems to happen with almost every one of these shows. But in this case, all this work does seem worth it. There's something about mixing music and speech in this way that just has this crazy effectiveness. Even movies don't usually hit people the way this kind of audio can. A little while ago, somebody sent me an interview with Ira Glass, the host of This American Life. He was talking about the process of making that show, and I found it really interesting. Then I found some similar interviews with Jad Abumrad of Radiolab and Robert Ashley of A Life Well Wasted. All of those shows are in some ways like this one, in the way that they mix music and speech together, and a common theme is that they all take an extremely long time to make. But in each case the end result is worth the effort, producing something that really stands out. This episode is about those shows, with quotes from the creators about the process that goes into making them, and the reason why they started making their shows in the first place. This might seem like a narrow topic, and it obviously has a special interest to me in particular, but I think these guys' thoughts can be applied to any kind of creative work. Let's start with the show that directly inspired this one, A Life Well Wasted by Robert Ashley. Robert Ashley is a video game journalist, and when his publisher went out of business, he suddenly had a bunch of free time. So he started working on a project he'd been thinking about for a while, an intricate radio show about video game culture. This is like an easy but surprisingly tough to answer question. Uh, And the question is, why do you play video games? Something to do in your spare time? Yeah. Got a lot of spare time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a lot of spare time. I'm 30 years old, going on 90, married and juggling odd jobs to make ends meet. I've been playing games regularly since I was 6 or 7. I spent months, probably years of my life, twiddling my thumbs in front of a screen. Games are my default pastime, the thing I do when I've got time to kill, which is rare these days. The thing is, I'm not really sure what I get out of all that time invested. I have no idea why I play, and I worry that it might be for the same reason these guys play. Get away from reality for a while. To escape. Is it that bad? They're fun and escape from reality, I guess. (laughs) Alright, I play video games to escape reality, get my mind off things, and because they're mad fun. Because it's fun. It helps me forget about my life, my horrible life. 
That's that's a, that's a non-inspiring. <laughs> <laughs>
and all you'd get from them is this sales pitch where they'd go through the bullet points of the things they'd want you to write. They'd tell you all the features of the game and all the things they were trying to communicate to your audience about the game so they could sell it. While I was there, I'd try to get personal with them. I'd try to ask them, why are you making games? What is this game about? What does it say about you? I'd try to get them to answer those sorts of questions, and they rarely would. They wanted me to write about the product, and I wanted to write about people. I wish I was hitting my stride, but I still feel like I'm figuring things out all the time. Like this one was really hard, um, and somehow just stayed hard the entire time. Whereas like the one I did before, I put a lot of time into, but somehow it came easier to me than this one. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what I'm doing. So it's a lot of like flailing, flailing around, trying to figure out the basics of what it is that I'm doing. <clears throat> Since I looked up to a life well wasted so much, I thought it was interesting to learn that Robert Ashley is in a similar position with another show. Here's a clip from a panel he was on at the Penny Arcade Expo. Um, a life well wasted is fantastic. Have you shopped it to uh, This American Life or anything like that? No, no. Uh, I did like a like a silly sort of fanboy um, email Jad Abumrod from uh, Radio Lab, which is my favorite radio show, uh, to try to get him to listen to it and. Uh, and he hasn't listened yet, but guys, I think he's going to. <laughs> I emailed him the new one, too. This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krulwich. And today, our program is about memory. Oh, my God. Hey, we're the radio people. Radio Lab is a show that tends to focus on science related topics with effects and soundscapes to gel everything together. Here's a clip for anyone who hasn't heard the show. How do you decide if somebody's alive or dead? If you take as your starting point King Lear from Shakespeare, when Cordelia, his daughter, dies, Help! Help! Lear takes out a mirror Let me a looking glass. and puts it right under her nose to see if there's some breath there. If that her breath will mist or stain the and he takes out a feather. This feather and does the same thing. And that is how he decides if she's on or off. Yes, and it's really one of the most beautiful scenes in Shakespeare. That's Gary Greenberg. He wrote a book called The Noble Lie. When it's done right, it's impossible not to weep. She's gone forever. At that scene. Cordelia. And the intimacy of that moment. But if you fast forward a few hundred years, things change. Like Just imagine, thought experiment, if King Lear had been written not in 1604, but 1968. LBJ administration. Okay, Cordelia would die. Lear would be distraught, but instead of doing the mirror thing again, he would call a doctor who would rush her to the hospital, shock her heart, resuscitate her, hook her up to a ventilator and a feeding tube, and there she would be, alive again. Sort of. I mean, technically, yes, she'd be alive because her heart would be, but... The Cordelia that he knew, his daughter, would be gone.
Radiolab is undeniably a fantastically produced program, and on its best days it does give a person a lot to think about. However, there's an odd cuteness to its tone. I could lie to you so beautifully, you would be on your back, tongue out. No way, because I would catch you. That, no, you wouldn't catch you. Yeah, I would. No, you would not. I, I would, would totally catch you. I'm so sorry to tell you this. That's not I happening. would catch you. No, if it were me, no, you wouldn't. So that's our hour. No. People who lie. And the people who catch them. Not. What is that? Like, they do that kind of stuff all the time, and it just puts my hackles up. A little while back, I took a trip to Quebec to visit my 99-year-old grandmother, and I filled my MP3 player with Radiolab episodes before I left. At one point, I was walking around Gaspé, Quebec at 2 a.m., listening to Radiolab, trying to get my mind off my poor old grandma and her inevitable death. And after a couple hours, Radiolab's constant chirpiness started wearing me down. At one point, I paused the MP3 player so I could say, Why are you ruining this for me? To nobody, just to get it out of my system. Which I did, and then I kept listening. But I think that in its own way, even that criticism is an example of how this type of radio can affect a person. It gets right into your head, and that can give it the power to be incredibly moving. But if it's doing something you don't like, that's right inside your head also. In the case of Radiolab, that meant taking a minor triviality of tone and causing it to exasperate me to the point where I was just talking to nobody, just emoting all alone to the cold French night. But even that, it's kind of amazing. And minor quibbles aside, Radiolab really is a fascinating show. And it did ultimately come through for me. Various segments I listened to that night helped me see some new and better angles to the end of my poor grandmother's life. It helped nudge me down the path to acceptance. Kiss on the mouth with hearts that
The main editor and creator of Radiolab is a guy named Jad Abumrad. Here are some of his thoughts on making that show. We had been wanting for a long, long time to do a program about sort of that essential scientific moment where a scientist sets out into the world looking for some sort of truth that's never been seen before, like a pattern in the world, like that's sort of hidden behind a veil of reality. And every so often, you know, a scientist will find it, and it's like that moment of discovery is really interesting to us. It always has been. So we wanted to do a show that focused on a series of those moments where people saw something new for the first time. See, the, the thing that's the secret about science is that it's trial and error. It's a bunch of people getting in a room and, excuse my language, fucking up. And they fuck up over and over and over until they get it right. And there's a lot of screwing up. There's a lot of, like, bad ideas. There's a lot of, like, despair. But you never get that. What you get from a scientist is a kind of podium-style, like, dissemination of knowledge. You know, like, I've discovered something, and here it is. You never get from them the sense that, like, I pulled my hair out for three years going down one rabbit hole after another until I found it. And if I think if we got that story more often, we would feel much more uh, sympathy for the process of science because it's just like being alive, you know? How I got into this was I never actually thought I'd be doing this. I, was, I thought that um, I would be writing music for films. That was sort of, and I sort of, part of me still thinks that. I'm like, one day I'll do that. But ultimately, I just wasn't very good at problem solving purely through music. It seemed like the intersection of two things I really liked to do, which was to write music and also to tell stories, because I'd also studied that in school. I sort of see what I'm doing as a kind of like, as a musical act, really. It's as much, you know, music as it is anything else, it's as much composition as it is storytelling. They're sounds which evoke a picture, an image, an idea, but they also evoke a feeling. The way that I always think about it is that the, that the music is a kind of, it's a, some sort of, it's unlocking the emotional interior of the, the story. And so it, the way to think, to, I mean, to sort of, this isn't so much like a technique as it is just a way of, of, way of seeing, like, uh, what is the sort of the inside of the story telling you? There's sort of the outside, which is the sort of the, the surface of the story, and then what's the inside? I think about music as punctuation. I mean, a lot of the music we use is not meant to evoke emotion. It's meant to punctuate the sort of the pauses and the cadences of a story. Like the turns, you know, when something happens, um, you want to use music as a way to sort of underline something. But you don't want to tell someone what to feel. You just want to have them, you want to tell them what's important, you know? I guess I would say think of music not simply to create a feeling, but to create spaces and gaps and illusions between things. One of the, the greatest tools you have when you're using music is when you take it out. Like uh, every event that it happens, you know, you put it in, and the moment you put it in, the next word in the story feels more important. The same thing happens when you take music out. The moment you take it away, the next word it feels important. And so those are your tools, you know? It's like uh, when you bring it in, when you take it out. That's why I hate beds. I hate music beds. Because suddenly the music disappears and the power it has to create sort of uh, punctuation disappears because it's just there. If you listen to This American Life, you'll notice that every time there's some big, fat, 
emotional moment, it happens over silence. Because the silence is really powerful. Because you feel somehow dropped into an emptiness, and that's, that's important. Then when it gets into the sort of scoring aspect, that's a kind of like real trial and error kind of thing. I wish I could say it was creative, but it's really not. It's like obsessive, you know, <laughs> putting A and B, C, no, that doesn't work. Okay, A, C, B, no, that doesn't work. A, E, D, B, ah, that sucks. And you just do that enough times until like the order suddenly clicks and, and the elements just kind of stand up and wave and say, hey, I like it here. And then you're like, oh, okay, I think I got it. But I spend, you know, once the story lands on my desk and it, it's a story that works and I don't have to do too much of it editorially, I just have to make it sound good. That part of it takes anywhere from two to three days to two weeks to get it right. And it's not continuous work, but it is, it's the kind of thing that I do a lot of passes. So I'll spend like two days scoring a piece and then I'll come back in a couple of days and I'll hear it. And I'll be like, ooh, that didn't quite work. And then I'll do it again, but um, this time I'll only spend a few hours, and then I'll go away, and I'll come back, and then I'll spend a couple hours again. Do you often find yourself having to kill your darlings? You've you've been sitting with the sound for a long time, and then people just oh, don't yeah. get it? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, totally. All the time. It's like you work really hard on something, you put it out there for people, and they're they kind of look at you with that very familiar look of like miscomprehension and you feel like this flush of rage and you want to kill them <laughs> and that passes and you're like oh, no they're right and then you feel despair and loathing and then you go back and do it again particularly with something like ours which is kind of boutique it's really sort of dense there's tons of sound and textures and things, and it's really, it sounds much better in your ears than it does coming out of a box. I do think that everyone will always want the intimacy of listening to a well-told story, and radio is so much more intimate than any visual medium could ever be. I love talking about geeky technical stuff. No one ever asks me. Another step up the chain from Radiolab is This American Life, hosted by Ira Glass. I had the strangest experience last night. I have these tapes recorded on my answering machine 10 years ago. Tapes that I had not heard in a decade until last night. And, um... I don't, I don't think I can play these tapes for you. I don't think that the people on them would give the permission. On one tape, there's a brief conversation between me and this woman who I lived with for seven years, accidentally recorded by the answering machine, just as we were splitting up. And um, on this tape, she's calling me from the street to say that she's going to a movie with a friend. And I tell her I'd like to come along. She's got to have it, is the movie, uh, is the movie that they're seeing. And she indicates no, she, that I'm not welcome. And then I tell her, well, I guess maybe I really do have too much work to do and some laundry that I have to get done. And later in the conversation, she asks if I'm going to be up late, and I say no. And she says, well, I thought you said you had all this work to do. Like she's catching me in a lie. I mean, she is. <laughs> she is catching me in a lie, but, you know, a, a lie that kind of made it her bidding. 
And um, then she asked me if I'm absolutely sure that I'm going to get her laundry done that night. And I tell her I'm sure. It was hard to listen to. I mean, I can hear myself being so scared of her in this tape. And in this same conversation, she talks about this guy who, just a few weeks later, she got involved with, her next serious relationship after me. And um, I talk about this woman who I was just about to start seeing in this serious way after her. And that part of the conversation is very awkward. <laughs> very, like, very awkward. And before I heard this tape, I could not have remembered much about that summer. That summer where we were splitting up in 1988. After seven years. But hearing the tape, it all came back. Where we lived, what was in the apartment, what we used to wear, how we talked to each other, and how I felt all the time when we were together. This way that I, I, I don't feel anymore. And, um... It messed me up. And it wasn't like looking at photos. You know, pictures are posed. You know, pictures are these tiny little, they're tiny. You know, you can hold them in your hand. They're like three, three by five. You know, you can crush a picture. This was not posed. And it was not small. And um, part of that, I think, is just the power of recordings. And part of it was the fact that we were on the phone. There is something about being on the telephone. It's just so intimate. Talking to a person on the phone, it's you are right there. You're so close. It's like you're whispering in each other's ears. On the telephone, we are who we truly are. Some of the time, anyway. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. This American Life has millions of listeners and has been on the air for ages. It's the granddaddy of shows like this, and the first to pioneer the format of intertwining stories with music this way, as far as I know. Here's host Ira Glass talking about the origins of the show and his path in life that led to his involvement with it. I think in general, when journalism documents our lives... I think that I think it faces the difficulty of having to peg people's stories to things in the news, to peg them to bigger issues in a way that excludes a lot of the substance of our lives. And so just the aesthetics of American broadcasting journalism leave out so many feelings and so many things that happen and surprise and pleasure and, and you know, moments of, of humor and joy. Like it just doesn't have a place in most reporting. And so what we're trying to do is take the tools of journalism and try to find stories where the plot is surprising enough that you want to see it and you wonder what's going to happen next. And it's completely engaging and it's completely, you know, you just want to find out in the way that a regular television drama, you know, makes you feel like you just want to know what happens next. So that's the engine that's going to pull you in and pull you forward. Um, but the substance of what happens is going to be all the feelings and all the things that happen to us in, in our regular lives and really use what journalism can do and document here's what it's like to be alive now in this country. It's too late. It's too late. 
the radio show gets a lot of its power just from the invisibility of, of radio, the fact that you're making up the pictures in your head. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a kind of uh, dreaminess to it, or, or the, you know, just, it gives the story like a kind of dreamy quality. I mean, I think the thing that attracts people is the same thing that attracts uh, us as a staff. Like, I, I do the show with five other people, and, you know, we're out, to, like, we're doing, like, really old-school, golden rule broadcasting, where it's like you don't put anything on the air that you yourself wouldn't be willing to listen to. And, you know, we look for stories that are compelling to us and that are funny to us and that are moving to us. And, like, and, you know, we're all suburban kids, you know? Like, like I feel like our tastes are pretty normal. Like, if, if we like it, we figure other people will like it. And so we just look very aggressively for stuff that we love, like really, really love. And since it's a weekly show, we have the luxury of being able to throw out a lot of stuff. Um, to find the three or four stories that end up on the show in any given week, we go through 20 stories. We go into production on seven or eight. We can kill, we kill about half of everything we start. And so we're looking for stories which have like an aesthetic of um, surprise and joy and pleasure, you know, and that there are moments that are really special. And you don't want to be making mediocre stuff. You know what I mean? Like, that's not why anybody gets into this. The only reason why you want to do this is because you want to make something that's so, like, memorable, it's special. I mean, we can get a story anywhere. And, and having said that, I don't feel like, like, I feel like every person has a story, but not everybody necessarily has a story that would be interesting on the radio. You know, because, because in a way we're not doing the news, we're not doing things often on, on big issues. Like often we're applying the tools of journalism to very small personal stories. And so for a story to be good enough to be on the air, it has to be pretty extraordinary. Like the plot of the story has to be pretty surprising. And, uh, and the people have to be pretty relatable and interesting people. You know, like a lot of people have important stuff happen in their lives that, that would be interesting to them, but wouldn't be interesting on the radio. Like a typical, like, like, you know, like I got married four years ago and, and it was incredibly interesting to me. And, and like, I, you know, like I have a lot to say about it to my friends, but, but nothing happened like that you could possibly put on the radio. Like it was just like every other wedding. You know, like, you know, the family drama was like everybody's family drama at a wedding, like nothing interesting happened. Like one of the hardest things with the show is like somebody will pitch us a story that happened to them that will mean a lot to them and is truly dramatic, like, some, like somebody who got over drugs. Like some of the stories, like it's incredibly hard to do. It takes incredible force of will. It's an incredible miracle that people come out of something like that. But like, it'll be just like, like anybody kicking drugs, you know what I mean? Like, and so, and so it won't work for the radio. We have to say like, no, like that's an important story, but not for the radio.
And like we're really good at our jobs, right? We're as good as you know anybody who does this kind of thing. And I gotta say, like we take around out a lot of stories, and between a half and a third of everything that we try, we'll go out, we'll get the tape, and then we kill it. And you should think of it the same way. That like you know, you thought it was gonna be good. You went out, you did the interview. The person wasn't such a great talker. They weren't so funny. They weren't so emotional. Somehow, when they told it to you in person with the camera, it wasn't the way they told you when you, they talked to them on the phone beforehand. They just got a little intimidated by the camera. Just something in the chemistry was wrong. You can't even name what it is and why even bother to try. But then when you look at the footage, you know that there's a feeling that you had about it, which isn't in the footage, right? And then it's time at that point to be the ambitious, super achieving person who you're going to be, and to kill it. It's time to kill, and it's time to enjoy the killing because by killing, you will make something else even better live. And and I think that like. Not enough gets said about the importance of abandoning crap. One thing that that you know you should know is that all video production is trying to be crap. Like in fact, all radio production is trying to be crap. Basically, that it's like the laws of entropy. You know that thing where like the universe is all the energy of the universe is dissipating, and like all the atoms are getting lower and lower in energy. Well, basically, like anything that you put on tape. From the moment you put it on tape, like basically, it's trying to be really bad. It's trying to be unstructured. It's trying to be pointless. It's trying to be boring. It's trying to be digressive, much like these sentences that I'm saying right here. And pretty much, you have to prop it up aggressively at every stage of the way if it's going to be any good. Like you have to be really like a killer about like getting rid of the boring parts and going right to the parts that are like getting to your heart. And you just have to be ruthless、um, if anything is going to be good. Things that are really good are good because people are being really, really tough, and you're going to be really tough、um, in in doing it. And you're going to know also that like failure is a big part of、um, success. Something I sound like some Michael Jordan ad, but like you know what I mean. Like like you're going to like run a lot of stuff, and it's going to go nowhere. And that's you should be happy about that. If you're doing that, you're doing it right. If you're not failing all the time, you're not creating a situation where you can get super lucky. About the dollar, but trying to go fast. Unless you take pride in what you're doing, you won't last. Craftsmanship, it's a quality that some lack. You gotta give people a reason for them to come back. It ain't about the dollar, but trying to go fast. Unless you take pride in what you're doing, you won't last. Craftsmanship, it's a quality that some lack. You gotta give people a reason for them to come back. And all of us who do creative work, like you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste. Do you know what I mean? Like you want to make TV because you love TV. You know what I mean? Because there's stuff that you just like love. Okay, so you've got really good taste, and you get into this thing that that I don't even know how to describe, but it's like there's a gap that for the first couple years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good. Okay, it's not that great. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste. The thing that got you into the game, your your taste is still killer, and your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point they quit. And the thing I, I would just like say to you with all my heart is that most everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years 
where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short, you know, and, and like and some of us can admit that to ourselves and some of us are a little less able to admit that to ourselves. But we knew like it didn't have this special thing that we wanted it to have. The thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, if you're just starting off and you're entering into that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. You know what I mean? Whatever it's going to be. Like you create the deadline. It's best if you have somebody who's waiting for work for you, somebody who's expecting it from you, even if it's not somebody who pays you, but that you're in a situation where you have to turn out the work because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to catch up and close that gap. And your the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. So you just have to like persevere and just keep... No, like, I'm not a big one. Like, I got to say, like, like, you know, like in the movies, like, there's this idea of, like, you just got to go for your dream. And I don't believe that because some people, like, have no talent and never will. And, like, they shouldn't actually follow their dream. They should actually, like, get out. But does that kind of conflict with the idea that you got to work to get that talent? You know, like... Yes. Fortunately, things happen in stages. Like, I was a terrible reporter, but I was still good, perfectly good at certain parts of working in the radio. I was, like, a really specially good editor. And, like, in, in a way, like, that's the best part of my job now. Like, the, the smallest part of my week is actually being on the radio. And it's the least pleasant part, I have to say. Like, really? It's, yeah. Like, I sit here where we're sitting, right? And I sit in front of a microphone. Mm-hmm. And I've got a script in my hand, right? And I'm, like, reading into this microphone about this close... And it's like, all you can do is screw it up. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, if you do it perfectly, all that you achieve is that you got the thing across, and there are so many ways to ruin it. And you have to sound completely calm, even though there's no reason to be calm. You're talking to over a million people. I mean, when I was your age, I was actually doing a variation on this job. After my freshman year in college, I was looking for some sort of summer job just because of where I grew up, like the Jewish suburbs of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, you were expected basically to, to prepare yourself to go to medical school, and so my parents had pretty much figured in their head that I'd become a doctor. Like, it just seemed like, well, what else would I do? You know, like, that's what people did if they were smart. <laughs> like, they'd become a doctor. And so I got a summer internship after my freshman year in college at the University of Maryland Hospital in the shock trauma unit. And that same summer, I also went around like just looking for anything in like radio or television or advertising. And I ended up at NPR that summer, actually. So at the end of the summer of working both at NPR and, and at the hospital, like it seemed really clear which one was more appealing to me. In my case, I do a national radio show, right? Like I make my living at this. I've made my living at this for a long time. And... Um, and, you know, won the Peabody Award, like, won all sorts of prizes, like, like a million, 1.7 million people listen to our show. People love our show, right? Like the show that I make with my, my coworkers. I'm, I'm done, right? I've mastered this thing. But I got to tell you, like, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. I'm going to play you a, a clip of tape from my eighth year. Like, I started in public radio when I was 19 at NPR's network headquarters in Washington. So a big news organization, had a really, like, peachy set of jobs. And, like... I was always a good tape cutter, but I was a horrible reporter. So this is a tape from year eight. It's not such a long way from the local grocery store to the international debate over whether sorghum and meat production are causing corn to decline in Latin America. All right, that debate. We were just talking about that at dinner. There's a general air of prosperity here. 
partly thanks to Mexican imports of U.S. grains, which helped boost our farm economy. Mexico is now one of our biggest grain customers, buying a half billion to a billion dollars worth every year, including corn to feed its people and sorghum to feed its livestock. Like, what am I talking about? Like, I don't even understand. Like, I wrote this. I don't even understand what it is. And like, okay, also, like, like every part of this is, is ill-conceived, okay? The writing is horrible. You can't even follow what I'm talking about. And then the performance, like, okay, just a little tip if you're, you know, performing for broadcast. You don't underline every third word for emphasis because it sounds really unnatural. What you want to do is you want to talk the way people normally talk. This helps cut our own trade deficit and benefits everyone in the U.S. economy. But in Mexico, this policy has led to fewer tortillas for the poor and unappetizing tortillas for everyone else. Again, like, this is like the most moronic kind of like, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And, and it's hard. It's actually kind of an interesting story, which I'll say to you in a sentence, which is because Mexico produces a lot of stuff that they ship to the United States, tomatoes and all sorts of really like wonderful food that we eat here, they don't make enough corn for their own people. That's the story. So we, because for us to get really great tomatoes or semi-great tomatoes year round, basically Mexicans eat worse. That's the story. And it's kind of an interesting idea, right? Like that's actually sort of like a cool idea executed in the worst possible way. Okay, so this is like year eight. I'm 27 years old when this is happening. Like I'm not a beginner. Like I'm deep, deep into it. It takes a while. It's gonna take you a while. It's normal to take a while and you just have to fight your way through that, okay? You will be fierce, you will be a warrior, and you will make things that aren't as good as you know in your heart you, you want them to be, and you'll just make one after another. stopped telling me like you can go to medical school like I was well into my mid-30s like I had a national radio show my entire 20s my parents thought every choice I was making was horrible they just hated public radio my dad would make a point of just telling me how boring it is and I was making no money and like and my parents are the kind of people of like they really had no money like as kids they were like, really and like the drama of their life was the drama of making it to the middle class. And it was really hard for them to imagine a way of seeing the world that didn't involve that being the most important fact. And like sadly for them, like they had done such a good job making it to the middle class that like actually I wasn't scared that I was going to like slip back into poverty. And it's like they did too good a job, you know? And so like they were always worried and, and it took me a long time to understand it. And there were many really bitter fights.
you know, different people have different personalities, and some people feel happy and confident when they wake up in the morning every day, mm-hmm. and some people are going to feel doubt and worry when they wake up every day, and it's good to acknowledge early which kind you are and make your peace with it. Like, I know, like, no matter what I'm doing, I'm going to wake up worried every single day. You just have to, like, run at something until something is talking to your heart loudly enough that you won't even have to wonder, you know, if it's the right thing. But you have to run pretty hard, and you have to be a moron along the way, and you have to accept that there's going to be a lot of wasted time and energy, and that that's not a bad thing. Like, that seems normal. You know, you just have to really push on things very, very hard before they get to be good, and yourself as well. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week, more stories of This American Life. Well, that's it for us. Radiolab.org. I'm Robert Grillwich. I'm Chad Rod. This is Radiolab. Thanks for listening. That was a life well wasted with music by I Come to Shanghai. XO number 10. For more shows, go to keithcourage.com.